Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 185 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. But this week, due to Matt's travel schedule for work, I have Nick Whitaker joining me on the podcast uh, once again. It's been a while, Nick. We were on a pretty good clip there together when Matt was was traveling uh, earlier in 2022, but it's been a while since uh, you've been on here with me, buddy. Yeah, I know. It's uh, I've taken a bit of a hiatus for everyone, yeah. so it's good good to be back. Nice to yeah. uh, nice to do this again. If everyone remembers what Nick's face looked like, it uh, looks like it's right on the screen for you. So, not much um, has changed. Yeah, no, not much has changed. <laughs> no, no, even it's uh, even though it's a new year, we're both a little older, uh, but not much has changed. The markets have changed though, a little bit to start the new year, which is good though, right? Oh, they certainly have. They certainly so. Have. Uh, before we begin, as always, just take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year, which is obviously the same since we are recording this on January uh, 19th of uh, the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on January 18th. Uh, and the data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index up 2.33% to start the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 0.45%. NASDAQ Composite Index up 4.69%. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index is up 5.29%. And the Vanguard International X United States ETF is up 6.88% to start the year. So a little bit of outperformance from technology, small caps, and international, which is interesting. Uh, and then the three-month Treasury yield sitting at 4.69%, the three, or excuse me, the two-year Treasury yield at 4.06%, and the 10-year Treasury yield at 3.37%. Moving on to big headlines and current events, uh, producer price index for uh, final demand decreased a half a percent month over month in December. Consensus was a decrease of 0.1%. Uh, and on a year-over-year -year basis, the index for final demand was up 6.2% versus the revised 7.3% in November. Um, so, you know, I think the big takeaway here, Nick, again, for those that might not be as familiar with the podcast or the producer price index, it's what prices producers are paying for, for prices, right, for, for input costs. So it's kind of the opposite from the consumer price index, what we're all paying for goods and services, right? It's just for the producers who are making the goods or services, uh, you know, their pricing as well. So I think the key takeaway is that while it showed, you know, the desired slowdown in year-over-year -year headline and core PPI, the absolute re levels remain pretty high. So, you know, obviously we're going to want to see and the market's going to want to see a continuation of this trend coming in uh, in the next couple of months. And in addition to that, total retail sales fell 1.1% month over month in December. Consensus was a decline of 0.8%. Um, and again, key takeaway from this report is that 
you know, the sales in the most discretionary categories fell for the second month in a row with department store sales, you know, going down pretty significantly to 6.6% after falling just 3.2% in November. So, you know, we're, we're in this process of prices are starting to come down for consumers and producers. Um, but now retail sales are, are starting to come in, right? And we talked about this, that this was probably going to be an unfortunate byproduct of this whole inflation, getting it under control, um, that, you know, people eventually are going to start pulling back. And that's typically behavior that you see during a recessionary environment. Now, it's not a, you know, a foregone conclusion that we're going to get a recession this year. But I think the uh, the consensus is that at some time in 2023, there will be a recession. And, you know, this is one of the things retail sales coming in is is something that they look for um, to to highlight that we are in a recessionary environment. Yep. Yeah. The only thing I'll add is this is pretty normal from an economic cycle perspective would be uh, to be expected. Right. It's like a, it's like a stock price, right? It can't keep going up and up and up every single quarter, every single month, every single year, um, because that would be unhealthy. And, and the same thing for, for these economic indicators like retail sales, it's just not something that's going to continually go up all the time. Now we're in good environments more than we are bad environments. So over time, you know, retail sales are increasing, but obviously during slowdowns, we're, we're going to get pullback in consumer spending as we start to see more layoffs and the unemployment rate increase. Um, this is all expected and, and shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, I don't think. Yep. Indeed. So moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. First thing I had was a blog post from JC Peretz on January 5th. And it's titled, Santa showed up, so now what? So, uh, at the end of last year, Nick, we talked a lot on the podcast about the, the Santa Claus indicator, right? Mm -hmm. So again, just to reiterate, the Santa Claus indicator is the performance of the S&P 500, the last five trading days of December, plus the first two trading days of the new year in January. Um, so when that's when that seven day trading span is positive, the likelihood of the next year being pretty good is, is high. Well, there's two other indicators that go along with the Santa Claus rally. And these were developed, developed by uh, Yale and Jeff Hirsch um, from the Stock Traders Almanac. So the, another indicator that they look at is the first five days of January. So Again, first five trading days of January, when you have that five-day span positive, the likelihood of this year being positive and well into the green is, is pretty high. And typically, when you get a combination of a positive Santa Claus rally, a positive first five days of January, it increases the likelihood of the next year being pretty good. And in addition to that, there's one more, well, actually kind of two more. One more is the January barometer when the whole month of January of the new year is positive. It's another feather in the cap of the bulls that the likelihood increases that the year is going to be positive. And then if we wait until the end of the first quarter and the markets haven't undercut the December low that was made, that's like you know, explosion to the upside, super bullish uh, hit rate is huge. Um, and we'll talk about that more as we get into the end of January, obviously, um, and at the end of the quarter to see if we've undercut the lows that were made in December. Um, but 
JC says, just pertaining to the first five days of January, that the last 47 uh, up first five days were followed by full year gains on 39 of those occasions. So that's a hit rate of 83%. And the average return is up nearly 14% for those years as well. So um, on the contra side, the numbers fall off dramatically when the first five days of January are down, coming in negative about half of the time and, and an average uh, return of less than 1% returns for the year. So just solely that the first five days of January this year were positive is is a tailwind, I think, going into this year. And I know some people might, you know, think we're crazy for talking about this stuff. And does this stuff have even, you know, any real meaning? Um, but if you look back at the data, which we have data going back to the 1950s, um, it's pretty interesting seeing how these indicators um, can forecast at least how the market is going to do to a certain extent. Um, so again, Santa Claus rally was positive. Uh, first five days of January were positive. We'll see if the January barometer, the full month of January is positive for the S&P. And then the fourth key, we have to wait until the end of the quarter to see if if we've undercut the, the December lows. So uh, as of right now, the train is on the tracks, Nick, um, and, and we're looking good so far. Yeah, absolutely. It makes It makes sense too, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but January, generally speaking is from a seasonality perspective on on just kind of a month or a month view january is typically relative to other months yeah it is it is so so a lot of that makes makes sense to me i know you have a strong january out of the gate um and if you're you know in a seasonality uh, of of a month that is typically weaker if you're not going to retest that december low that is very positive from a technical perspective. So. Yeah, absolutely. And add that to, you know, we're in a, a pre-election year. So pre-election years tend to be extremely strong, um, whereas midterm years tend to be extremely weak. So, you know, you start adding all of this stuff together. Um, you know, I think it's it's favoring the bulls in, in 2023. So yeah. uh, switching gears a little bit. Uh, next thing I had was a blog post from Mike Piper on January 2nd, titled My Experience with Check Fraud and What You Can Learn From It. So I talked about this a little bit on an episode of Questions with Mark and Matt. Um, But Mike wrote a personal check in uh, early September of 2022 for $5, Nick, that he just dropped in a USPS mailbox. um, And he was like, it's, you know, it's $5. It's, It's not a huge deal. Um, so Jenna's going to throw up on the screen, you know, a scan of that check that was written, written by Mike. And next to it, you're going to see a check that was deposited that was the same exact check. However, the dollar amounts and the payee were a little different. Um, so if you're looking at our YouTube uh, video right now, you'll see both checks. And then Jenna will throw these in our show notes as well. But someone intercepted the check and chemically washed it to remove ink on specific portions of the check and wrote in a new payee and amount. So the first check that he actually wrote was for $5. Someone chemically washed it to be $2,151. And it was paid to a person rather than an organization that he first made the check out to. Um, 
So this is, I mean, pretty scary that people are, are starting to do this now, Nick. Um, and, and per the police detective who was in charge of the case, they're getting approximately 30 of these reports per day. And that's just in one patrol district. So just a few neighborhoods in St. Louis. Um, Mike said that eventually they got their money back, but in total, resolving the situation took more than three months and required 14 phone calls, including he doesn't know how much time spent on hold, two visits to local Bank of America branches and two visits to the police station. Um, and he said that if he hadn't scanned the original check before mailing it, the process likely would have taken a lot longer. Um, but they had to close their checking account. They had to open a new one, switch everything over that automatically was charged with their old checking account. Mm -hmm. And, you know, essentially, even if you get your money back, it's an experience you, you definitely don't want to go through. Um, and, you know, as far as being able to avoid being on the receiving end of check fraud, I think that, you know, and, and Mike points this out, the easiest thing to do is just avoid mailing checks all in general, just pay electronically whenever you can. It's very common um, that you can set up bill pay and you can just electronically make payments and link your bank account. Um, so if you if you don't have, a, have to mail a check, then don't do it. Um, but if you do find yourself in a situation where you absolutely have to mail a check, um, possibly have it sent via your bank uh, or using a bill pay feature rather than writing it by hand. Um, and if that's not possible, he recommends writing the check in Sharpie uh, because that ink is is the hardest to remove and, and chemically wash. But, you know, this was this was how people paid a lot of stuff back in the day, Nick. And, you know, no one ever yeah. thought that you could, you know, chemically wash a check to get the ink out of it and change the, the payee and change the dollar amount. But I mean, th this is happening 30 times a day, just in a small little district in St. Louis. So I have to imagine this is happening all over the country right now. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just important for people to be vigilant and try to do things electronically if you can. Yeah, it's a pretty wild story. I peeked ahead and read a little bit about this. And yeah, yeah was, I know. Uh, it, was, it was interesting. My eyes were like, when I was reading it initially on Mike's blog, my, my eyeballs were like popping out of my skull. Yeah. Um, uh... Yeah. Interesting. Uh, last thing I have, Nick, is a blog post from Ben Carlson uh, titled What Happens If Housing Prices Fall by 20%. And he says from April 2020 through June 2022, it's another wild stat, housing prices in the U.S. rose more than 41%, which is basically a decade's worth of price gains in a little over two years. You simply can't have that happen for the most important financial asset for the majority of U.S. households. There's a possibility that home prices simply stagnate for a while to work off these gains. However, the rapid rise in mortgage rates also increases the probability of a more substantial fall in prices. Ben says even if we do get a 20% sell-off in housing prices, it's not likely going to have the same impact as the housing crash in 2008. The credit profile of borrowers is far better now than it was back then. Uh, Jenna will sh uh, throw this chart up and it shows the mortgage originations by credit score. Um, and as you can see, you know, over the past several quarters, uh, credit scores were you know, pretty high uh, for people generating new mortgages. And I think this is the key thing here, Nick. He said that the majority of homeowners have locked in rates at 4% or less. So even if prices fall, most people are still going to be able to pay their mortgages. And 
Again, another key difference from back in 07, 08, mortgage rates were higher. And, and you know, even prior to that, in the late 90s, I've, I've talked to people that had mortgage rates, you know, in the double digits, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 percent. Um, so I think this is a, a big key here is that, you know, so many people have locked in low mortgage rates after refinancing during COVID. Um, that I don't think it's going to have as big of a ripple effect um, in terms of foreclosures. Um, and another interesting point that, that Ben points out is that he said this, that there is an enormous margin of safety built in with all the home equity that's been accrued from the housing bull market. And he throws this stat out there, which is wild. And I mean, if it's accurate, then that's crazy. I don't, I don't know how accurate this is. It looks like it's coming from... AHS first American calculations back in 2021. The key stat here is that 42% of owned homes are free and clear. And that is way higher than I would have expected, Nick. Yeah, it was a little higher than I was. That was that, that, that jumped out to me as well. I wouldn't have guessed that high. But thinking demographically, I guess it makes sense when you think about how Mm -hmm. large the baby boomer generation is and kind of you know where they are on average in, in their age you would think uh, been in homes much longer and um, you know I just think about my, my parents as an example and uh, you know that kind of age you know, mid mid 60s kind of getting towards retirement a lot of people have already paid off their homes and, and mm -hmm. obviously that's a big bulk of the population and um, and I was thinking about a lot of dem demographic research that we've been reading in the markets about um, how the workforce is changing and a lot of the baby boomers are retiring. And so it, it makes sense that it's high, but yeah, that still seems pretty high for even thinking about all the demographics with, with the baby boomers. So Yeah, and that's a good point too, because, you know, obviously people that are owning homes are, you know, on average older and, you know, the, the younger generations are actually already showing that, you know, they're not owning homes as early as the baby, baby booners, uh, or, you know, right. anyone else that is kind of in that older generation yeah. or generations. Um, so it makes sense. And, and, you know, the older population tends to stay in their homes for longer, et cetera, et cetera. So it, you know, it makes sense that there's a decent chunk of people that own their homes free and clear, but 42% is a lot. So, all in all, you know, we've been kind of hammering this point home since COVID is that, you know, eventually we're going to have a pullback in housing prices. Is it going to do as much damage as it did in 08? We've been in the camp that it's not going to be just because there's different um, things going on in, in the mortgage and housing uh, environment than there was back in 07 and 08. So um, we continue to be in that camp. Yeah. I 100% agree. One one point I'll make for your listeners, just to give them a little perspective on that 41% gain um, that you you talked about previously, and that um, yeah, what what was it? Here it is. Housing prices in the U.S. rose more than 41% from April 2020 through June 2022. I'm not going to quote the exact average because I don't remember off the top of my head, but a normal kind of range that you could expect housing to appreciate on a yearly basis is more in that two to 4%, yeah. not 20%. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's like a stock portfolio. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, the two to four percent is normal. You know, if we were saying, oh, during that time period it was up eight percent, we would say, oh, that's a great two years. Forty one percent is astronomical. Um, so just just to give listeners a little bit more to go off there on what what is normal. Um, so right, it is, and you know, now that we're kind of talking about this, this is what I love. I love doing podcasts on on video conference because I can look stuff up um, <laughs> really really quickly here, yeah. but. Um, I want to just quote the average, uh, the average um, mortgage rate right now because I think that's uh, really interesting. Yeah, it's it's got to be mid single digits, right? Or yeah, low. Let's see. Well, yeah. Thirty year. Courtesy of Y charts. Thank you, Y charts. Uh, as of um, the week of the twelfth, six point three three percent is the average mortgage, which is thirty which year is, thirty year mortgage rate. Yeah, which is also really good in the context of history. I think. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, if you, I mean, gosh, if you blow out this chart on the max, you know, in nineteen eighty, mortgage rates peaked at almost nineteen percent. Yeah, the eighties were wild for for rates. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I mean, we got, we got as high as 7%, you know, back in like November of 2022. So um, I think, you know, people are in this weird time where if they're growing their families and they need more house, they're thinking long and hard about if they want to move because of how much more they're going to pay in a mortgage They're locked in at, you know, sub four or 3%. And they're like, Hey, you know, kids, you're going to bunk up for a couple of years uh, and you're going to share rooms because, you know, you can't beat this rate that they have. Um, so it's an interesting, interesting decision that families are going to have to make, but um, yeah, at least the, the average mortgage rate has, has come in a little bit from the high and, you know, if prices and inflation come down and, and yields start to, to come in a little bit, I would expect that to continue to fall, but we'll see what happens. We shall see. It'll be another interesting year in the markets. That's all. All right. That's it's it never for a me. shortage. There's never a shortage of things to talk about in the markets. No, there's not. There's not. That's we can do a podcast today. That's what makes the. That's what makes the job fun. So yeah. Um. The first. The first piece of research I have here is actually very quick. Uh, it's uh, just a quote that I thought was interesting from a Bloomberg uh, market recap article. They throw those out every day. You know, they're typically pretty long articles and they'll pull up charts and they'll grab uh, comments from analysts and um, sell side research analysts and buy side research analysts, etc. And the quote that I wanted to, to read here is as follows. We expect 2023 to slowly see a shift of the market worrying about inflation to worrying about the economy, which is more of a hard landing narrative. And this uh, is coming from Jonathan Krinsky, and he's a chief market technician for BTIG, which is a big research house. And again, it's a quick piece of piece of research. I just throw this out to to listeners as a as a fair warning of what to expect over the next year, because we're already starting to see this, and it's going to be very similar to what we dealt with last year with inflation, where you read about it every day. 
it's in the headlines and everyone's talking about it and all of this and all of that, that narrative is going to slowly change as it always does in the markets. And we can only stay on one topic for so long because things are changing. And the, the big narrative, I think, will be about, you know, the recession. And is the recession coming? Worrying about the health of the economy, the underlying strength of corporate earnings and the hard landing narrative. I think you're going to start seeing that in the headlines with much, much more frequency over the next uh, you know, year. So, yeah, I think, you know, just like anything else that happens in the markets or the economy, people are going to have pretty short memories and, you know, inflation is going to be eventually a thing of the past. And there's always going to be something else that grabs the news headlines. And yeah, like we talked about last year, we're going to see some more crappy economic data and that's going to start to grab the headlines where it starts hitting, um, you know, Main Street America more is obviously when you start to see increased layoffs and the jobs, um, yeah job job loss and that type of thing so uh yeah i kind of agree with that yep so just a little bit of a forecast there for for listeners just expect it in the headline you're gonna see it this year but that would not shock me so the uh, the next two pieces of research i have are more chart and technical focused this is a tweet from yesterday actually uh, and this is a chart from that that was created from bank of america their their research house over there and uh, the, the quote here is 65% of the S&P 500 stocks are above their 200-day moving average. And it, it's a great chart. General will throw it up here, and you can. It, it's kind of a two-for-one special here, right? Because the chart on top, it, it shows the S&P 500, um, just the index pricing, and it, it also shows your, uh, let's see, what is that? Yeah, there's the, the 200 um, simple moving average. So you can see where we are. And there's been a lot of talk on this and, and the, at least the financial news that, that I follow um, about bouncing off the, the S&P 500, bouncing off this 200-day moving average. There's a lot of technical resistance there. and You, know, you can make an argument on both sides, but when you kind of peel the, the layer back, you look at this little chart underneath it, and that shows the percentage of S&P 500 members that are above their 200-day moving average. And so that's where you kind of see there's a lot of bullish technical indicators when you kind of peel that layer back and, and see what's going on in the underlying side of things, not just simply looking at the S&P 500. And, and again, that quote of 65% of, of uh, 500 stocks are above their 200-day moving average, that's really good. That's a nice, uh, a nice show of, of strength despite the S&P hovering bouncing off this 200 day moving average so arguments pundits on both sides of this argument um as far as where we are with the the technical resistance on the 200 day moving average but when i look at this chart i i see a little bit more through the bullish lens especially in context of some of the other things we mentioned um with the positive technicals from the january comments you made on the santa claus rally factor in what a weak year it was in 2022 um, I, I view this more through a bullish lens, but what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, a couple things stand out to me. Um, number one is, so, you know, right now, approximately, you know, 65, 66% of stocks in the S&P 500 are, are trading above their 200 day moving average. And, you know, 
again, going back to the fundamentals of it, the 200-day moving average is really just a simplified signal as to if a stock is in an uptrend or a downtrend. So, you know, stocks that are above their 200-day moving averages, we clarify that as being in an uptrend. Stocks below their 200-day moving average in a downtrend, and it can oscillate up and down and kind of chop around and go nowhere, right, Nick? But, um, you know, if you look at this chart, you know, we haven't had this amount of this amount of companies above their 200 day moving average since December of 2021. So really a little more than a year ago. So, and each time the S and P 500 has tested this downtrend line throughout 2022, um, the percentage of stocks above their 200 day moving average was slowly grinding lower, but you know, this test of the trend line, the percentage of stocks above their 200 day moving averages is, is higher. Um, and another key thing to note, at least for me, from a technical standpoint, you know, we made a new low in September of 2022. We went up, tested the downtrend line um, in, you know, November-ish, fell back down in December, but we made what we call a higher low. So in December, the markets didn't go on to make new lows at all. Um, yep. before coming back up again and testing this downtrend line in the 200-day moving average. So that's the first mm -hmm. higher low we've made uh, since this bear market started. So again, that is a positive thing that we have not seen yet. And I would continue to expect that if the percentage of stocks above their 200-day moving average continues to increase, that eventually we're going to get a break of this downtrend in, in the main markets. And the S&P 500 for listeners is a is what we call a market cap weighted index. And all that means is you take the stock's price town times and multiply it times its outstanding shares and you get the market cap. And the higher the market cap, the more weight that is given to the company in the S&P 500. So you know, the big dogs of the S&P, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, Google, um, Johnson & Johnson, those type of names have more weight and can throw the index around more than, you know, a company who's, you know, 490th out of 500 uh, in the index. But we'd like to see more stocks participating in an upside move than just a handful of large tech names. And this seems like it could be the beginning of that. Um, and, and, you know, if, if we do get a lot of these tech names start to turn around after they've been, you know, beaten down for the past two years, man, watch out above. Because if you have smaller companies in the S&P 500 above their 200 days and these big, larger tech names start to join the party, yeah, be a significant move to the, to the upside. Yeah, start to see some positive momentum on the big picture side of things on the indice level. Uh, yeah, a lot of underlying strength. Yeah, yeah, that's an that's an interesting one. I hope I hope uh listeners listeners enjoy that that chart. The last piece of research I have is, uh, is another good chart, and you you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast uh, with pricing. This is a tweet from uh, Mike Zaccardi. He's a CFA and C CMT. He's a financial reporter. He um, writes for SoFi, a bunch of Reuters, a bunch of different other news sources. Um, and this is a, another very simple chart, but he, he just has one line. that says, are y'all chasing foreign stocks here? Y'all is a quote. Um, 
that's not my southern southern twang southern twang that's <laughs> that that is a direct quote um and it, it, it's a good chart for multiple reasons um and jen i'll throw this up for everyone it's uh, the relative performance of veu to vti so veu is the vanguard FTSE all world x us etf and that's actually what we talk about in the podcast at the beginning with pricing and then vti is just the vanguard total stock market etf so it shows relative performance of international versus what is domestic for for us as u.s citizens so international versus u.s and relative performance and one of the reasons i really like it is because he you know you know how i feel about historical context and looking at the history of things it, it does show the historical context of just how strong our domestic markets have been over the past decade and it's also interesting to see this bounce here at the very end um, obviously you mentioned it at the beginning of, of international doing a little bit better and, and showing some, some signs of life after 15 years 20 20 20 years um, yeah i think the biggest so, thing so it's that that stands out to me with this chart is that, you know, there's academic theory out there that, you know, you always need to have a portion of your portfolio allocated to international stocks. And I think this chart just completely blows that out of of proportions. I mean, you don't, I mean, from 07 to 2023, if you were overweight or had a significant position in international stocks, there was just a, a huge opportunity cost there with not being invested in the U.S. And hey, I'm I'm open and ready for this to potentially change. And you know, we would be open to adding more international exposure and in portfolios if this trend changes. But you know, just from what we've seen over the past couple of months of international outperformance. I mean, it, it still is microscopic compared to the past decade on, yeah. you know, how badly uh, U.S. stocks have outperformed international stocks. Yeah. And maybe this is the time that the tide turns. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm definitely going to need to see a little bit more than what we've seen the past couple of months to to see that this thing has really started to turn around. Yeah, exactly. This is still just a modern, uh, a, a modern blip in what we could call temporary outperformance certainly is mm-hmm. uh yeah in the chart. Uh, you, you can see that clearly in the chart right i mean it's a down, it's a clear downtrend but uh it is a, an interesting little blip up there um you know, the context of uh, the market starting out a little stronger and having some technical tailwinds and coming off a bad year um you know a lot of I mean, you could argue value out there that's interesting to see yeah, it is. And I would argue that at least for right now, it's a cyclical kind of uptrend within a secular downtrend for international stocks. And, and you know, this has only, again, happened for the past couple of months. So we're going to see need to see more strength before we can say, hey, this is a turnaround that, you know, international is going to begin to outperform U.S. over the next however many years. But as always, we'll just wait to, to get the information. But right now, it's it's still like, hey, we should be a little cautious about still adding a bunch of international equity exposure right now. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Well, that's that's everything I had for listeners. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for uh, for falling in today, Nick. I appreciate it. I'm sure listeners uh, did as well. Um, yes. So we're going to bring... Always good to be here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we're going to bring uh, bring Taylor on for the financial planning topic of the week. So again, uh, Taylor is uh, our wealth advisor and paraplanner here in the office um, at Jessup Wealth Management. Um, and I believe today that Taylor is going to be talking about social security. So um, I know that you know, this is one of the, the hot button items that questions we get from clients, especially when we start working with new clients is surrounding social security. And when should I take social security? Uh, should I take it while I'm still working? Should I take it early, my full retirement age or delay it until age 70? So, uh, so Taylor, welcome back to the show and you can go ahead and jump right in if you'd like. Yeah. So first I just want to talk about social security while you are still working, because we do get a lot of questions about that too. So as a reminder, you do receive your full social security benefit at your full retirement age. So that's going to be between age 66 and 67, just depending on when you were born. So if you take benefits before your full retirement age and you're still working, you will receive some kind of reduction in your benefits. But if you're taking benefits after your full retirement age and you're still working, your benefits are not going to be reduced, which is really nice. So if you are under the age 66 or 67 and you are working, um, there will be some kind of reduction. So if you earn anything below $21,240 in 2023, $1 is going to be deducted from your benefit payment for every $2 above that income level. Now, again, if you um, reach full retirement age this year, um, only $1 in benefits is deducted for every $3 you earn above $56,520. And your earnings are only counted up to the month before you do reach that full retirement age. So not for the entire year. Yeah, and I think, so I think, uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Taylor. So I think, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people are probably like, wow, there's a lot of like calculations and, you know, I lose $1 in benefits for every $3 above a certain amount that I earn. So, I mean, I think that the key takeaway here for people is that, you know, if you can wait, uh, you should, you should wait most of the time to, to take your social security benefits until after you're done working. And especially if you can wait till age 70, because that's going to be the max amount of benefit. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, age 70 is ideal. I know that's not realistic for everybody, um, mm -hmm. but at least wait until age 66, 67, if you can. Right. Um, so just kind of continuing on with that, um, like I mentioned, Social Security won't withhold any money from your monthly benefit if you are at that full retirement age, and they also won't take any money out of your checks either, um, as long as you're below that income threshold for the year. Now, regarding tax, if you are still working, um, whether you have earnings from working or it's other taxable income, uh, like distributions from a retirement account, so an IRA or a 401k, 
um, part of your social security may still be taxed. So it doesn't matter if you are employed um, or retired, you could pay taxes on up to 85% of your social security benefit. Um, if you are single with income of $34,000 or higher, or if you file ma married finally joint um, and combine your taxable income is higher than 44,000. Now that number does drop a little bit. Um, so you will pay taxes on up to 50% of your social security benefit. If you're single with taxable income between 25,000 and 34,000. Um, and if you're married filing joint, it's 50% if your income is between 32 and 44,000. Yeah, so, and I think it's probably eye-opening for people that, you know, it's it, the, the thresholds really aren't that high, right? Um, no, not much of a decrease. No, not, not at all. No, not at all. Um, so, you know, and, and the other thing I want people to understand too is that, you know, that we're talking about taxable income right here for, for these thresholds, Taylor. It's not gross income. Um, so Correct. taxable income is obviously after all the deductions and, and everything and credits and things like that. So, um, you know, if you're someone that makes, you know, $50,000 per year, you know, more likely than not, your taxable income is going to be less than that. So that helps. But, mm -hmm. you know, still, these these thresholds are, are not very high. No. And a lot of times people think that Social Security doesn't get taxed at all. And I can see why people think that. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, that's just not how it works. So. Yeah, it's not how it works. There's certain states where Social Security isn't taxed at the state level, but at the federal level, usually mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, just kind of all that information together. Um, key takeaways are, like we just said, wait until your full retirement age. Um, if you can to take Social Security, obviously age 70 would be um, ideal, but that's the simplest way to maximize your benefits if possible. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you going through this, Taylor, because I think this is you know, the basics of social security, I think are easy to understand, but there are mm -hmm. so many different um, scenarios that could happen uh, surrounding social security that a, a lot of times people have questions on. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if anyone has has questions about their situation, feel free to, to reach out and, and, you know, Taylor or someone on our team will will get your questions answered. Um, but appreciate you bringing this, uh, this up here, Taylor. Yeah, of course. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for us. Uh, we're going to be signing off for the week. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 185. I hope everyone's had a great start to 2023, and we'll be back with you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.